Now, to get the night on the way, let me introduce to you the beautiful Jamila Rizvi, who is editor-at-large with the Nines Network, Future Women, host of the podcast Future Women Weekly, and a weekly commentator for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and, of course, one of Claire's very best friends. Let's make her so, so welcome. Thank you, Chris, and hello, everyone. I'm about to get real soppy. <laughs> I like to think that I know my mates pretty well. I'm not a surface buddy. I'm the person who asks pointed and uncomfortable questions, the person who gets you talking, even when you'd rather not, the one who holds a problem up to the light, rotating it slowly and examining it from every possible angle, the one who wants to get to the bottom of the things and is a sucker for an intervention. I'm the friend who, more than occasionally, my friends would rather went away. <laughs> and I thought I knew Claire Bowditch, my dear friend Claire Bowditch, pretty darn well. Like a bunch of people in this room, I sobbed to her songs as a teenager, ruminating over breakups and believing that she alone understood just how I felt and how deeply my heart was hurting. Alternating between Claire and Missy, I would find better ways to channel my rage and bruised ego than endlessly calling the object of my affection, who would then call the police. <laughs> when Claire and I became accidental friends over a tortured advertising campaign posing as an interview, I was quietly overjoyed. I was also acutely aware that my adoration of this woman could potentially be perceived as stalker-like. So I played it cool. Having never been cool in my entire life, this was really hard. But I like to think that I pulled it off. Claire is kind enough to pretend that is true. Five or six years on, I thought I knew pretty much everything there was to know about Ms Bowditch. When she told me she wanted to write a book, I cheered my friend on with a tinge of nervousness. You see, when you're an editor and that's your job, people you know ask you to read their work rather a lot. And how can I put this politely? A lot of people's work isn't very good. <laughs> I opened Claire's earliest of early drafts. This was well before there were literary agents and publishing houses on the scene with trepidation. And friends, I cried, oh, how I cried. My fears weren't quietened, they were blown out of the water entirely. This woman can write, oh boy, she can write. There is music in Claire's words. Stories flow from her keyboard like water from a planet ruining luxurious showerhead. She speaks the thoughts most of us are too afraid to say out loud. This book, I promised a then very anxious Claire, would be a gift. When Bowditch asked me to open this event tonight, I was honoured. She asked that I give somewhat of a 21st birthday speech, but about her book. Your own kind of girl deserves a speech. And while to all of you it will feel fresh and new, this story has been decades in the making. This book is the result of tired nights, teary rewrites, more than a few bottles of wine, panicked phone calls, bold restructures, and declarations that she would never finish it and should just quit now. Claire, you did it. This book that I would be holding in my hands had it not been already nicked by my mum for book club, is a triumph. It sings from every page, just like Claire does in every sphere of her life. It is honest and kind and funny and warm and sad and soulful, distressing but delicate, uplifting and life-affirming all at the same time. It takes the complexity of a woman who wrote it and commits that fullness to the page. To those of you here tonight, I cannot wait for you to leave this place and devour these pages for yourself. You will not be sleeping this evening, so cross that off your agenda. <laughs> You're about to be invited into the world of Claire Bowditch with her sweet but sorrowful childhood, her tumultuous teenage years, early 20s punctuated by joy and grief, expectation and awkwardness, and then of course, discovering the love of her life and with him, making a few more. Your own kind of girl reads beautifully. While the content is challenging at times, those words flow in their poetic perfection. Don't mistake that flow, however, for a book that came easy. This book did not come easy. It was written during some fairly tumultuous years where Claire lost friends and family members far too soon, where mental health reared its ugly head, where the stuff of life crept in and stole precious writing time away, where self-doubt stood like a cloud above, 
threatening and cruel. This book was written during years where Claire grappled with its purpose, its direction, its essence and its delivery. This was a book born of struggle and its contents are a gift to each of us. And I knew it was going to be. Claire takes how you and I feel and she puts it into words. She gives us the language we need to unpack the joy and the jealousy, the messiness of our own feelings about love, loss, food and friction. I'm not sure I've ever felt so seen in my own messy relationship with my body and the world it exists within than reading this book. I've already read reviews in the paper that quite rightly say your own kind of girl is a brilliant book. It is. They also, however, have focused on the more traumatic revelations in its pages. I understand that. I'm a website editor. I know that horror grabs clicks and that distress holds them on the page. But your own kind of girl is so much more than that, everyone. It is an affirmation of being human, a toast to the roller coaster of life. It describes a woman who isn't content to let happiness find her, but has gone out to grab it with both hands and sing at it at the same time. It tells the story of a family so warm and wonderful that their tenderness is difficult to capture on the page and yet Claire manages to do it. It is a love letter to the girls and women who struggle with every meal and for whom when they see the person they see in the mirror will never quite be good enough. It is a reminder that life is what happens when you're not paying attention. And friends, it is one ripper of a read. To Claire Bowditch and your own kind of girl, happy 21st birthday that you never had. It's not been an easy road, but then again, none of the interesting ones are. And when I have glanced out the racing car's rear window, I see, I see fields of green and skies of blue. I see the sun laughing back at you, Claire Bowditch, shining on your beautiful face and saying, now is your time to shine right back. Happy book launch. Thank you. What an opening. I think we could just go home after that. Yeah, good evening. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Susan Carlin, and this is the woman that we are all here to celebrate tonight in this sensational, much underlined book. Claire, let's get right into it. I was still like I'd have to redo my makeup after that. <laughs> well, we you... just got Jamila Rizzed. That's yeah. what we just got. <laughs> It's a good feeling, ladies and gentlemen. It's a good feeling. Hey, um, can I just thank you for being here and thank you, Jamila Rizvi, one more time for that beautiful opening and to Christine from Readings. Beautiful women. It's my first time, Sue. <laughs> Let's enjoy it. Look out. I know you can't see many of the people, oh, but wow, enjoy this moment. This is going to be a great conversation. This is going to be a great conversation. Just thank me, you, you, and 450 of your closest Hello, friends. friends. <laughs> This is the book that you promised yourself at 21 that you would write. Why now? Well, um, there's all sorts of things I can say about how it's, you know, it's difficult. Well, I've been a bit busy the last couple of decades, what with my music career and whatnot. <laughs> um, but here's the truth of it. I knew that this would take a while to work up the courage to write. And what I also knew was that I needed to test my theories first. Now, this is not a memoir about... Uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll and it's not really about the celebrities that I've had the pleasure of working with or um, you know things that I wouldn't tell my mother it's really about this experience of trying to find who we are in the world and it actually finishes and it's really funny because I know no one here's read it um, but it finishes when I'm 27 it's not about anything that you've ever seen um, publicly it's really about the other part of my life what is it how do we tell stories that make sense and how do we define identity in the world and what do we do with our suffering? Is there anything we can make of it? So when I was 21, I had a tough old time and I promised myself that if I got through it, I would one day pass on the baton of hope that I had been given by people at the time, um, by a book by a woman called Dr Claire Weeks and by the love of my family and friends and I promised one day I'd tell this story, but not till I was really, really old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> say 40. <laughs> that is literally what I said to myself. So that's why now, you know, I'm edging up on late 20s now and... <laughs> you know, you're 28, you're ready to reflect on the ready, first 27. Ready to reflect. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why it took so long. Yeah. You say in the book, 
on page 42, grief makes vessels of all of us, but especially of children. And the experience of losing your sister Rowie or Rowena shaped you and your sense of self profoundly. In many ways, guilt, which we'll get to later. But it also really profoundly shaped your relationship to food. Why do you think it started then? So to, to my family here today, I just want to give a shout out to anyone with a surname Bowditch or Robinson. Are you here, guys? All right, great. Yeah, crew. Um, we're very shy people. We're very shy, so... Um, so I was always aware that, you know, these stories I tell are shared stories and they're told from my childhood perspective. So a lot of the time um, I was working on instinct. So just to, to explain, I'm the youngest of five. We're all 18 months apart. We were brought up in a really uh, wonderfully warm family down Sandy Way. Any shout out for any Sandringham people represent? Yeah, right, right. Right, awesome. Look at us. Um, we made something of ourselves, didn't we? Okay. <laughs> So I was born at Sandringham Hospital and again I was the youngest of five. My mother's one of 11, my father was one of five, mum came here on a holiday, they fell in love. It wasn't a holiday actually, she was searching for meaning but she fell in love with my husband, uh, my husband, my father, Jesus, whoa, what's what my language? In anyway, good evening, that's a big revelation there. Oh, we can all I go remember home. that in the yes. book. Oh God. oh God, I didn't mean to say that out loud. Um, so we're laughing because this is what we do, you know. In life, we were having a pretty good old time of it. Um, unfortunately, when Rowena, who was two years older than me, was five, she became really unwell and it took a really long time to work out what that unwellness was. And by the time that was worked out, you know, despite my parents trying every trick in the book and everyone in our community trying to support us, it was a very long road to diagnosis and, and the diagnosis wasn't a good one. It was, you know, that she would live in the children's hospital and we were told she didn't have long to live and she was on life support um, from that moment forwards. And this is as sad as, um, you know, as sad as it can be. And I know that many of you have lost a sibling, you've gone through this experience in your own lives too. And the truth is you will also know if you've gone through it that in between all that chaos and, um, you know, that sadness was also these structures which helped our family of love, of faith, of um, hope, of Rowie herself, who was bright as a button and the mascot pretty much of the Royal Children's Hospital and absolutely beloved and lived, you know, still to this day, lived, lived um, you know, years, years beyond where they thought she would live. And so there was so much life there. But there was also this feeling of so much emotion and it's, Jean Piaget calls this the age of magical thinking, this age between five and seven or, you know, this young age, and that's where fantasy and reality are quite blurred. We're working out who we are. And that is the age in which Rowie got sick and which um, I grew up really around the children's hospital um, and lost her. So there was a feeling of always this love and structure that my family provided, and a lot of it was through um, faith and also through... For me, I decided that food was a pretty easy thing to, to like. Um, anyone disagree? No? <laughs> okay. Um, so in that survival brain, you know, I got quite attached to when we'd be in the hospital because um, I was there, I was the youngest and I was there with mum quite a lot. Um, and there was no meerkats back then in the late 70s, no. <laughs> so going to the cafeteria and having, you know, a Europe bar or something, something fancy like that, all of these things reminded me then and I attached them. They reminded me of my sister, the Samboy salt and vinegar chips in the cafeteria, her custard and soft apples and um, also the things that gave us structure were the meals of the day um, and, you know, roast on Sunday nights. So somewhere along the line, for whatever reason, I became quite attached to food and I also happened to have a body that was quite robust and it meant that um, I was fat. It was just kind of that simple, you know. I was, uh, my mum's in the audience going, you were not fat, you were beautiful, you were a peach and Amazon. I know you are. But objectively looking, I, you know, I, was, I, I had a jiggly little body and I quite liked it and I was quite mm. confident in it. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that was part of my attachment to food, was that it really provided a security, it was somewhere to go, it was easy and accessible fun, and at the same time I had a body that really was, you know, I knew it was, it was a difficult time and my body was like, we're hanging on to this baby, mm -hmm. we shall survive. Your relationship with food metastasized from there. You quite 
literally seemed to embody your internal battle with food. You said, when I was thin, I felt powerful but exposed. Wrong. When I was fat, I felt belittled but safer. Wrong but also right. Tell us about that. When I was 10 years old, um, I had worked out that in order to have um, agency, shall we say, at school, at Sacred Heart Primary School, anyone there represent? <laughs> okay, good, thank wow. you. Um, uh, you know, I had really good friends, but I was teased quite a bit by the older guys, and I realised that if I teased myself first, and I was like, I am, you know, hey, baby, like if I sort of pretended to be the big chubby monster, it was like, I'm going to eat you. Mm. Then everyone had a bit of a giggle, and I could at least be laughed mm -hmm. with a little bit. So it worked out that I could find a way through this maze of being called the Fatty Boomba, and... Um, and, and find a place there. But at a certain point, the teasing got to a stage where I was like, I want to go on this thing that I'd heard of called a diet. And um, these are all stories that my kids have heard many, many times. Hi, guys. How are you? <laughs> um, so um, I went on my first diet. I had to sort of convince my mum. We went to a doctor and he put me on quite an extreme diet that was, you know, perfectly... He was a doctor. We trusted him and it worked. Um, I didn't eat terribly um, much of my old junk food over the summer and I came back quite thin and people didn't recognise me at school. So it was grade five and I remember the librarian, um, I said, hey, you know, how was your, how was your summer? She sort of ignored me and she couldn't work out who I was and when I told her I was clear about it, she went, oh my God, you look amazing, you know, and, and this was this sort of amazing rush of attention which is so human you know we're really curious like you don't look like the girl that you left but you left over the summer but what happened was there was some confusing messages there I didn't really mind that the mums would ask me to photocopy the diet for them but I wasn't brought up in a home where I had a mum who dieted mm. I didn't understand what was going on um, and it it was wonderful to have that attention and love and agency, but it was also terribly, terribly confusing because I had been brought up to know that it's your insides that count, not your outsides. And here I was getting the message, this is chapter three, you guys, if you're reading along. <laughs> here I was getting the message that uh, both things are true. It is your outsides that matter because when they change, people notice. Mm -hmm. And when they change, it's much easier for a kid like me to walk into a shop and buy some clothes, not from the ladies' section, but from the kids' section. Does matter, but it also, to me, confused me because I had always felt it was only the fat kids who, uh, the kids who teased me that had an opinion on my weight. And I started to realise the world has an opinion on my weight and my body. And it took a terribly long time, you know. Um, anyone who's heard my song, Your Own Kind of Girl, you realise it was a little bit of a roller coaster. That was not fiction I'm here to reveal. That was a true song, guys um, and gals. Um, and so I can't remember your question. Yeah, I don't know what it was either. I really, <laughs> but I appreciate it. I knew it was a good question. I was getting was somewhere. No, I'm sure it wasn't. No, but that's true. You say on page 37, and somewhere in is all this of... This is surreal. Susan Cullen is quoting my, back, my book back to me. Can I put this in context? Years ago, we were here, um, we were here launching Jamila Rizvi's incredible book, yeah. Not Just Lucky. Who's got it? Yes, exactly, represent. And me and Susan were walking along this aisle here and she looked at me, she knew I was writing a book and she said to me, you will be next. And I didn't believe her. And, and now I here can't I am. believe how, I can't, this is quite I'm going to quote your book back to you, so okay. get ready. Okay, I've got a lot of this. Hang on, I'm getting relaxed. On page 37. This feels good. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try to say it in my best Claire Bowditch voice. <laughs> and somewhere in all of this, I made a little <laughs> bug. <laughs> No, no, you sound much. That's as good as I am. I'm hopeless. It's like me trying to do my mum's accent. You should have heard me in the audio book when I'm trying to quote her. She's like, you sound, sound it's like the anyway. meerkat ad. And somewhere in all of this, I made a little bargain with myself that my mum would be okay as long as I made sure that nothing bad ever happened to me. I would need to be very careful always. Later, much later... That was the thought that took up residence inside me, that I was not, under any circumstances, allowed to die. That even thinking about death was a sin. 
this is an idea that you seem to carry with you. This clearly this it's guilt. a comedy, guys. I mean, yeah. we've just <laughs> there are funny bits, but yeah. But you did carry this responsibility, yeah. this guilt that it, it seemed to become like an albatross mm-hmm. around your neck. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with I, that? I would, and I think again, it's just back to that um, the comment about vessels. So it's such a common response that somewhere in our love for someone that we've lost, which again is an experience that all of us will go through and most of us already have. You do whatever you can with the love that is left and you try to find places to put it and to make sense of it and you tell yourself stories about, um, for me, I realised only in retrospect that these stories of guilt that I somehow had to stay alive and I had to survive for my mum and, you know, meanwhile my, my mum and siblings, we're all, you know, thinking that we're all trying to protect each other somehow from this experience that we were going through and somewhere in there um, your survival brain again is what is firing you know and it was telling me you must stay alive you must be careful and I was always so you know through love we really can sometimes tell ourselves really strong stories that keep us anchored to to things that aren't quite you know that aren't processed so a lot of my love with Rowie and the stories that I would tell myself around Rowie was that I should have done something differently and I could have done something differently now we know from an adult perspective looking back that of course there's nothing that we can do this is a circumstance of life and it was beyond even my control you know like but as a kid with that magical thinking you really um you know, get get some really strong ideas in your head. And I wasn't aware at that point that that was also the voice of anxiety coming to visit for one of the first times. And, uh, you know, I know that so many of us know this voice loud and clear, but it was telling me that I had a special responsibility and in a way it was keeping me a little on alert for most of my life mm-hmm. to make sure that I, you know, could take care of things. You give that voice... Uh, a name in your book. It's a constant companion who seems to be quite cruel to you, an inner voice that you called Frank. Who yeah. Who is Frank? So I've left ahead here a little bit and I like this because we've only got a few days here together. You realise that? <laughs> We're all moving in. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so here's what happened. I had an experience at the age of 21 that was an acute experience of, of anxiety um, it was in London. I'd gone over there. Is this okay if I, if I yeah, go? Okay. I'd gone over there uh, with the dreams of starting my quote unquote amazing life. So I'd written this list to myself. I'm going to write a novel, make beautiful music, act in the theatre with inspiring humans, learn a language, run like the wind, help people fit in. I'm quoting my own song back. It was actually just a list <laughs> that I wrote. And I went to London and I had a a really acute experience of anxiety that, you know, I did, uh, my my friends needed to help me home, my friend Libby Chow needed to help me home and I I needed a time to recover from that. And I didn't know what was going on. I had no name for it, no framework for it. I didn't know what was going on. I just thought I was going bonkers, basically. Um, And what helped me put that experience into context was... I don't want to spoil the story for you guys because I've just realised you are actually going to... Well, you've got the book there. They've already paid for it. Yeah, you paid for it. Spoil it. it. Fine. Um, (laughs) One of the clear ways that really helped me deal with this voice of anxiety, besides my, you know, the lovely old-fashioned book by Dr Claire Weeks called Self-Help for Your Nerves, was to externalise it. So I was sitting there trying to, you know, I was brought up in a, in a Catholic family and what do you do in your 20s when you really need, you, I was someone who really needed the concept of God but I was reading a lot of Buddhist books because, you know, they, they felt new and fresh. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so there was this uh, book by Jack Cornfield and the exercise was, was called Naming the Emotions. Now how many of you are really world-class meditators? Okay, great. <laughs> And how many of you have attempted to meditate in your life? Just said, yep, yeah, there, there we go. So, so I was in your camp um, and I was trying to do this exercise called Naming the Emotions where Jack Caulfield, who was an, a New York monk who lived in a cave and now he was back in New York and he was, you know, popularising Buddhism. So anyway, <laughs> Naming the Emotions. So apparently when I felt something, I had to name it in threes, like... Lust, lust, lust. You couldn't see I was thinking that. Just I'm quietly sitting there. Or, you know, anger, anger, anger. Now, I was in such a klushter stump of feelings when I came back from 
the UK that I had no way of naming what I was feeling. And I kept trying to do this exercise and failing yet again. Failing, failing. This voice in my head will say, you're always going to fail. You're no good for nothing. You know, who, what sort of person could be this bad at meditating, etc., etc." And, you know, they were, the, they were the lighter thoughts. It was also the really dark thoughts about, you know, you have to not die and you have to... Like, there was, you know, it was a really tough time. Um, we're, we're making light of it because mm. we can, you know. But... Um, what I triggered upon one day as I was failing was, what if I don't have to name the specific emotions? I was getting quite caught up in, no, that's not anger, that's, that's melancholic. What is it? No, I don't, I don't have the word yet. So I was amplifying my anxiety. But I realised that if I just gave it a name, this voice, this inner critic, this saboteur, whatever you want to call it, lower brain, if I just gave it a name, it, would, it, it was a way of externalising it. So I called it Frank. And I really apologise to those of you who are called Frank. <laughs> you call it anything, but I think I called it Frank because I didn't know anyone who was called Frank. <laughs> and also I had, you know, I knew it was fear that I was feeling and it sort of had an F in it. And it also went nicely with what I started to say to myself. And probably the secret of my moderate success is really learning to tell that inner critic to F off. Mum, block your ears. <laughs> what I would say was... Fuck off, Frank. <laughs> Every time the voice would come up, I would, you know, I tried to be polite with it at first, but it didn't really do much. It just sort of get in an argument. So I started to realise when the feeling came up, if I told it to get in the corner or F off, then I could get on with my day. And that technique has worked very effectively over all of these years. And I've realised now it's quite, you know, Dr Charlotte Keating, who's one of the wonderful friends who I chatted with through the writing of this book and helped me write an additional resources letter at the end for anyone who's ever experienced this and wants a bit of additional help. Um, she, she explained to me that this is a really common CBT technique now. So I just stumbled upon something that worked. and. Mm. And now the hashtag FOF has been invented. So I, I give that to you. That is my gift to you. Do you think everyone has a Frank? Uh, I think we all have a lower brain. Uh, those of us who are functioning human beings all have a lower brain. What? <laughs> or have a brain. Let's start there, okay? So, you know, I'm no neuroscience expert and I don't think we need to be to understand this. This is what was explained to me. You know, we have a fight or flight response. It's a survival response. This lower brain is the one part of the species that is passed along generationally. You know, it's, it carries over. It's our primitive brain and it keeps us alive. It helps us be aware of danger. And, you know, it's a really handy thing to have in a dangerous situation. But uh, we also have this frontal cortex, we have a higher brain through which we can start to train our way of thinking. We can use play, humour, faith, whatever we need to have some influence over the stories we tell ourselves. Not our circumstances, which is always my struggle. Mm -hmm. I thought there was something magical I could do to change, you know, my body or, or what had happened or the weather. Maybe not the weather, but other things, you know. And I realised we didn't. So I think everyone does have this ability to um, you know, if you're in reasonable health and you're a functioning human being, you have a fight or flight response. But in traumatic situations, we can fire it a little too fiercely and we can get trapped in that. And that time in London, I wasn't sleeping, I was barely eating, I'd had an experience on a train where a friend had collapsed and I'd had what was commonly known as a panic attack. And for me, I just thought, don't ever tell anyone about this weird feeling that you're having. Mm. And it wasn't until I realised it's quite a normal, natural human response that I was able to really begin quite a solid recovery and using art in a way that brought me to you guys in the first place. That event with your friend Phil on the train where it looked like he was going to die. Phil was fine, but in that moment you really feared that he was going to die. It seemed to precipitate almost something of a, a breakdown. Yeah. Do you think that was always imminent? Mm. Good question. Um, how many of you here have ever smoked dope? Okay, great. <laughs> I'm looking over at my children really, I'm trying not to. So I had a couple of clues in my life. I asked that for a reason, you know. So I went to an alternative progressive school called Press Hill, which is great. Press Hill represent, anyone? Yeah, great. Hi, hi guys. Hi, there you are. And we had a wonderful time of it at Press Hill. It was a great school. But at a certain point, one does, as my father called it, um, partake or try a little wacky weed. <laughs> okay, so that happened. Um, and now I highly recommend against people like me doing that because for me, I had my first panic attack 
during that experience, but I, again, I didn't know what it was. All I know was that, that, that shit's not for me. That really is not for me, right? <laughs> so, I could, and I could see other people didn't have a similar reaction. Some did, some didn't, etc. But um, so there were little clues like that. There was always a clue that I was, you know, a sort of anxious kid. There was a way my body dealt with its, um, you know, dealt with anxiety. It seemed a little different to me, but I don't know that it was imminent. What I really think is, I was able to benefit greatly from understanding myself, and that break, you know, I called it a. Well, it was my one and only genuine authentic nervous breakdown. That's what I got in retrospect. And I had this therapist, Ron, who was always trying to convince me to call it a breakthrough. <laughs> Just like Renee Brown's therapist, right? So I have this theory that maybe they all went to therapy school and that was what they were taught. Just call it a breakthrough and they'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> but Ron, as we call him, was correct. Mm. So I could see looking back that, of course, there were things to process from childhood that I had not yet processed in an adult brain. And perhaps in that way, it was inevitable that at some point I would need to learn to understand, you know, and, and really feel that the deep and profound grief of what we had gone through as a family. And I could still feel it as I speak about it, but I'm not going to cry, so we just move on now. Let's talk about music. Great. So that's lovely. <laughs> so lovely. it was after a messy breakup, you, you fled to London. And it was there that you seemed to finally get the confidence to start performing properly as a musician. And I have to say, I found this really surprising. Did because you? why do you think you doubted your ability for so long? As someone who's heard you sing. Come on. No, but I'm serious. Like, I can't imagine how you could have this talent and not be running for the microphone. Why do you think oh, that you... I was you... running sometimes, wasn't I, Lisa? <laughs> and I, I mean, yeah, I used to. <laughs> and, and why do you think you can sing so confidently now? Oh, God. Um, good. Okay, I'm going to think about this now. All right, so... I really did want to be a singer um, in my childhood. I wanted to be a singer, I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to tell stories, and I think these are playful things. And I didn't realise that, you know, I, I certainly didn't have any special talent to speak of. I could harmonise well, that, I found that really easy and fun. But um, I couldn't... I didn't see anyone who looked like me or wanted to talk about the things I wanted to talk about in popular culture. I just didn't see it in pop music. And I, so I really had no concept of where I might potentially fit. When I was 16, I think, I was lucky enough that my mum, Maria, went and did a second degree. She was then really, really old, like 43 or something. And like even older than you are now. Yeah, that's no, no. serious. Really that's weird. older than book old. I'm actually 44. That's weird. <laughs> I thought she was a really grown up mum. And mum went and studied and she uh, made some friends with, with a, one particular folk singer called John Beavis. And I remember watching him play in our living room and having that sparkle of thought and feeling of a different kind of a power, not the one that was aligned to the, you know, the popular group at school, but one that was somewhere higher, that was speaking about something that meant something. Of course, I said nothing. I just sat there and went, yeah, hi. <laughs> um, but in my mind, something shifted. <laughs> you know that feeling, though, where you're like, you're really interesting, but I'm not going to move my face. <laughs> <laughs> so it was that feeling. I don't know why I'm having these feelings. Later, I um, was invited by my awesome brother-in-law, Tim, to sing backups in his band, Quarter Acre Dream. Represent anyone here know of Quarter Acre Dream? Um, thank you, all five of you, family. <laughs> and uh, I loved this experience of singing. There was a part of me that always wanted to be up the front. And I remember in church, too, singing when we were kids, and there was always a part of me that wanted to maybe grab the mic from the priest and just take care of business. <laughs> so... <laughs> It was there in me. Yeah. But there was a push-pull, you know, there was a lack of confidence. There was that voice of anxiety that would come up and say, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? You can't sing. Just believe that song, uh, you know, that song in my head, that, yeah. that sort of bad song. Um, and I didn't want to make a fool of myself and I didn't think I was talented enough. And again, I, I thought it had some, I thought my size had something to do with my ability to show up in the world. And I, I say these things out loud because I know they sound a bit silly, but they also sound familiar, I think. Um, and I like to be able to say that because we all have stories we tell ourselves about who we're going to be in the world and who we're not allowed to be in the world. But this singing thing wasn't going away. Mm -hmm. So it was helpful for me to go completely overseas. 
off the back of a terrible breakup um, with some a lovely guy who we just were not good for each other. And to have this story of hope, like, oh, this time I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a songwriter. I'm going to be a singer. Um, so having a, a breakdown over there was devastating. You know, I started to play open mics and I started to get my confidence up a little bit. But really in the wake of that, um, there was no song, there was no music, there was no television, there was no books, there was, you know, I didn't walk around the block, I didn't do it, you know, I was really just putting my bits back together. Mm. And song didn't, song started creeping in again later, but again, I was really, really scared about, you know, what you would think of my songs. At a certain point, and again, it's one of the stories that we tell in the book, you know, at a certain point, um, I realised that it was really up to me to decide whether I was going to give it a crack or not. I wanted to do it. I felt jealous when I saw other people doing it. Um, and that's a clue too. If you ever want to gouge out my eyeballs, you're a singer. <laughs> okay, so good to know. So that, you know, so now I sing confidently because I connected with the fact that when you share your music in the world, you get to meet people like you guys, you get to hear your stories, you get to feel that connection, you get to, you know, it's a profound privilege to be able to give people a soundtrack and share stories through song. So now I think I can sing confidently on the stage. I did three weeks of an Eva show once on this stage, which was awesome fun. Why can I do that? Because I think we all have the right to sing. If you can talk, you can sing. That's something that a friend of ours, Faye White, told me years and years ago, and you'll meet her in the book too. And um, I, I think, yeah, I don't have to be um, anyone else. And so I've, I think I've just got a different perspective about mm. it. How was writing this book different to writing a song? Uh, we have, this is so interesting. It's just occurred to me again that my friend Susan is now interviewing me and there are people here. I mean, it's such a wonderful privilege. I won't waste another moment. We've only got five minutes wild. left and you just Great. <laughs> we just sit here in silence for five minutes and take this all in? So it's different because writing a song's easy and writing a book's hard. Mm. Why? In a song, you can hide behind it and you can pretend it's not you. Um, and, and you can stick it to three minutes. And also, I'm just, you know, straight up. If you can talk, you can sing. If you can, you know, if you can walk, you can run. But we don't all run or sing the same. Usain Bolt seems to find it a bit more easy to run than I do. And I found it easy to sing. You know, I found it really easy to sing and make up songs. And I'd always done that because... Part of my childhood was um, making tapes for relatives in Holland, and then another part was when Rowie moved into the hospital, we would make her tapes. We would chat into tapes and make them for her to keep her company, and I pressed play and record, and I just was found it easier. But writing stories, I, th I don't know, maybe writing fictions. Are there any fiction writers in the audience, recipe writers? Like, maybe that's a bit different. But I've got to say, writing this felt harder than writing songs to me because you're really saying this actually is my story and the story of why does this matter and why would I tell this story? I had to keep anchoring back to that because it would be much easier to just plot along as we were. Uh, I think we had a, had a good relationship over the years. We haven't needed to know too much about each other's personal backstories. <laughs> and now I'm revealing it. But, uh, you know, I just had to keep reminding myself it's done, it's done for a purpose and, you know, I... Again, back to that thing of shared stories. When it's a song, it's yours. When it's a life story, it's a whole lot of other people's as well and mm. you want to treat that with respect. One of the running themes through the book is that you always seem to attract a really big supportive group of friends around you. Have you ever felt lonely? Oh. Have I ever felt lonely? Oh, yes, absolutely. But I am fortunate with my... I have incredible friends mm. and I've had, I've been loved by my family so I know how to love, you know, and these are real, real privileges. And again, this book is written through the light of someone who was brought up in a, an environment of great love and fun and friendship. Um, and I guess one of the most awful things about anxiety and about grief that's not processed or talked about is that you can even be in the midst of that joviality and life and still feel this pr profound loneliness because nobody knows who you are because you're not showing them who you are. Um, so yes, and I still, 
you know, often I know that I've got a bit of a chat to have with Frank because this 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 lovely Eeyore-ish, sort of awful, lovely, melancholic, oh, well, nobody really likes you alone. You know, Marty's only here because of obligation. Or whatever the <laughs> my poor, you know, my poor family who had to see me through, again, a lot of that. But it's the it's the... Yeah, especially through writing a book, because if you want to know whether or not you have a Frank, if you're like, no, I don't have one, try writing your life story and then we'll chat afterwards. <laughs> I maintain that. So, um, yes, and writing this book, actually, I have a feeling. I, I had a friend, Sarah Wilson, she's hosting an event for us in Sydney in a couple of weeks, and she's an author, and she wrote a book called uh, First We Make the Beast Beautiful. Has anyone read that book? Yeah. And she was saying that one of the reasons she wrote the book was because she was tired of being lonely and she wanted to be known. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I sort of wonder what will happen now, whether I'll feel that feeling anymore. But I've got to say, I know who to call when I feel that way now. I'm not scared about ringing up Monique or Dee for my sisters Lisa or Anna or my mum or even my daughter and going, mm. <laughs> Jamila's copped at the worst, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> over the writing of this book. So, yeah, I'm not afraid to do a shout-out. And my publisher, Kelly, was a great support in the process of writing with that loneliness. As a first-time author, I thought, gosh, am I doing it right? Mm. And she gave me the Winston Churchill, just keep going, <laughs> which worked well. <laughs> what is Frank saying to you tonight? So it's, Does he a, go quiet sometimes? Yeah, it's a funny, yeah, it's a funny thing that happened. So just before I got on stage tonight with you crew, who I knew were friendly and pretty much, you know, my family um, and some friends that I used to work with and most of you, many of you, you know, are, are friends from radio. So I knew I was in a loving audience, but Frank's always terribly loud before I get on stage because it would be a lot easier, um, I'm sure you can imagine, to uh, hide under a big rock. Um, it's fun to, you know, imagine one day I'll be doing my work in the world, but just before you do it, or just before I do it, I'll say, I always feel incredibly anxious. I have a bit of a bark at, you know, usually Marty or not. And then Christopher, my darling friend, came and did my hair. Kemi was here, you know, encouraging me. And still I was feeling a little restless. But as soon as I get on stage with you and we're here, Frank goes quiet. Mm. So the story about not good enough, you know, look at all the faith that people have put into you. You know, I'm thinking about all the work that everyone's done to get us to this night. And I'm worried. And then I get on stage and I see you on. It's just... Bliss is the best I've ever felt in my life. <laughs> so Frank's pretty quiet. Good. Too. Fuck off, Frank. Fuck off, Frank. <laughs> Susan Kelly <Keller> just swore. <laughs> She's a doctor. <laughs> Obviously, the events of your life are unique, but I think the feelings will be shared yes. by many people. What are you hoping will most resonate with people from your book? So I think really, essentially, the reason it exists and the reason I wrote it and kept writing it is because there's great hope in... Um, there's great hope available for anyone who's suffering and doesn't know what to do with their suffering. And I hoped, you know, there's just a part of me that kept me brave all these years because I knew that there's a possibility when you're an artist and when you're a mother and when you're a, a friend and a daughter, there's a possibility for all of us that we will be able to hand on a bit of hope to each other as we go along. And I think my... I wrote this book because it's not an easy story to tell. Some of it's not easy and that's because life's not particularly easy. But I do profoundly believe that the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves matter. And I've always wanted to stand, it's made me courageous to stand on stage and think of you and think of us crew who are just, you, you know, often women living our lives, trying our best. And so that made me feel brave as I, as I wrote the book. And I think I just wrote it because I wanted you to know that there's a, you know, the stories we tell ourselves matter and we can change them if we want to and we are powerful and that our dreams do matter and our contribution matters. 
And you know that there, if you're out there suffering, um, that there are there is great hope available. That's why I needed to write it because there was a time in my life where I forgot that and it was dangerous. Mm. I want to finish with this. In, you mentioned this actually earlier. In your book, you mentioned this list that you wrote. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go through this list of Claire Bowditch's amazing life. And at the geriatric age of 44, <laughs> I want you to see how many of the things you've achieved. So when you wrote this list, you wrote down the things that you hoped one day you would have achieved. Let's see what you've, if, what you've done from this list, OK? This is really Number one. Write a novel. It's not a novel, it's a memoir. Close. This is pretty close. We'll give that a yes. Thank you. Tick. Make an album. Tick. That one. Act in the theatre. Does the TV count? Yes. You may remember. Exceptional role. Logie nominated, I think. Ah, oh, thanks for bringing that up. TV. So tick. Learn a language. Have we got that yet? No. Still time. Unless the language of emotion. <laughs> or the language of love. Bloody give me that a tick. That's getting a massive tick. Run fast. No. No. <laughs> Does anyone know a hashtag I invented called schwalking? Okay, that's a run. That's a, I, was, I started to, I wanted to address that one at the start of this year, right? So I went, great, we're going to start running, let's do it. And again, it was under a health at every size framework. I wasn't looking to change much. I just wanted to run. Um, anyway, within about two days, I'd done my bloody meniscus, hadn't I? <laughs> old, old ski boarding injury, snowboarding injury, which happened the first time I snowboarded. Like, my knee just went... And that was it. So anyway, then I limped a bit and then I decided, well, I'd announced I was going to start running, so we better invent something around that. Schwalking. So it's, a, it's available to all of you. It's a mixture between shuffling and walking. We could have called it shrunning, but we didn't. And um, there's an instruction thing on my Instagram just in the story set. It's there for you all. Schwalking. So no. Okay. Well, we'll put TBA. <laughs> I've still got something to live do, for. You do, because this list. Do something that meant something, something that made people feel included, something that helped people. Yeah. I think you've got a lot of those things. You've got this book, your radio <laughs> show, big-hearted business, a million other things, so that gets about 15 ticks. You're actually ticking I'm ticking this. I'm an academic. We've got things ticking off. Travel everywhere in italics. Yeah, I think we've done a bit. I've done enough. Tick. I'm pretty happy at, you know, in Coburg or Fitzroy now. It's right. travelling for me. You know? Answer this one honestly, please. Okay. Make a million dollars minimum. I have, actually. Sorry. Bloody tech. <laughs> Kids are like, where the hell is it, Mum? Well, shush. <laughs> Love you. And if I were lucky, one day I was going to love and be loved. I was going to meet the man of my dreams. We were going to have a house in the hills with a garden and a fireplace. We were going to make music and soup and drink wine and read each other poetry. And it was going to be just like a Joni Mitchell song, only happy. <laughs> I think that's a tick with Marty. It is a tick. I got very, very... I look at Jamila every time I say the word lucky. But <laughs> I did find love and it started as friendship. And again, like, that's one of my favourite things about this book, that I got to tell that story properly. Mm. That is a beautiful part Don't touch book. him. <laughs> <laughs> Mine. Jamila said to me that she was looking at Marty a little differently after reading the first... <laughs> She said, maybe you should tone it down a bit. Well, He gets a really nice edit, a <laughs> very nice edit. That's true. We haven't finished. Okay. And then if I was really, really lucky, I was going to be a mother. Oh, God. <laughs> Three ticks for that. I feel emotional because they're really cool. They're, they're 10 out of 10 kids. And then a grandmother too, one of those really cool ones who stool, still stood up and did the Lambada at family parties, <laughs> even when she was 90. So we can put TBA yeah, for that. Yeah, TBA. I think you've done a bloody amazing job That's of true. your amazing life. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, darling. Thank you so, so much. Well done. Darling lady. Thank you, everyone. I really, really appreciate you coming tonight. I can't tell you how much it means to me, but can we just um, give me a moment, because I've got a couple of 
Thank you. Um, this is the Melbourne launch. This is a hometown. This is the first time we've talked about it. Thank you so much for your beautiful, incredible, thoughtful questions. Incredibly thoughtful. Um, what time are we on, guys? Uh, Six, 7.28. Okay, wonderful. So, look, we, we um, I just have a few people that I want to thank. Um, I'm going to get some flowers now and they're going to come in from the side of the stage magically. I say, like, I need flowers and then, well, I'm just going to look at my phone and, yeah, here they come. I can see them coming. Uber flower delivery. Real quick, we've only got 39 roses to put. <laughs> Suze, I want to thank you firstly so much. <laughs> Jamila Rizvi, I want to thank you for being the fairy godmother. I want to thank you for organising with all of your crew this beautiful event and for your incredible work. Come on up here. I really want to thank my crew from Alan and Unwin who released this book and the woman who was at the head of that who fought so hard and beautifully for... It's amazing. To tell this story is my friend... Her name is Kelly Fagan. She's a brilliant young publisher. Thank you, Kelly. Now you've probably seen or about to see a whole lot more of the publicity from this book, which has been worked on with love and care by the team from Pitch over here, Dina and Terry, I just want to thank you for all the beautiful heart that you've put into telling this story and helping me tell this story. Now, of course, this story would not exist without my incredible and remarkable family who allowed me to tell this story, supported me through it, and more than anything, just really loved me. <laughs> it always did, which is a pretty bloody good feeling, actually. Um, and so I really just want to take my hats off to Oscar and Elijah and Asha, who, wore, who lived with a mum who wore a nighty for a couple of years. <laughs> I just want to thank you for being my inspiration always. You are the reason I have done all of this stuff because I feel brave when I'm around you. So thank you for being such beautiful children and beautiful supporters of what I do. I love you guys. And I also cannot um, go any further without thanking the incredible and remarkable Martin W. Brown for everything that he does. I love you so much. And I'm so looking forward to you actually having your story told a little bit because... We are a two-person band called Marty Brown and Claire Bowditch, but I always get the credit for it, and that's what has seemed to suit him. But I, I'm, I think it's time to turn it around. Good on you, Marty, Good on you, Marty Brown. Just a couple more thank yous. I really want to thank my beautiful friend, Kemi, who's here doing Instagram. She's gorgeous. And all of my friends who have helped and supported me, you know who you are, who've loved me through this process and been there from the beginning. And I know it's really, um, I feel good about this book because it's something that I'm proud of and I hope that you will find something useful from it and tell your friends. And I was thinking of my friends when I wrote it and I was, I just feel very, very lucky and I'm not going to name you out individually because you'll <laughs> get annoyed and I'll forget someone. But I just, <laughs> I just really want to thank um, all of my dear, dear friends who've seen me through. Give me one second. I just want to show off my dress from Spell. Um, thank you. <laughs> I really, really appreciate them dressing me um, for this tour. I'm just going to double check my notes before I have one more very special. Thank you. Oh, I wrote a brilliant poem last night. Just no, I'm joking. <laughs> oh yeah. Someone who I thanked earlier today, um, but I want to thank again. You see this beautiful cover? I didn't know she would be here today because she's been sick in bed all day. But she's bloody showed up. 
Anna Robinson, the famous photographer, just happens to be my big sister and she took that photo. So congratulations, Anna, on your one of your first books, book covers. <laughs> <laughs> um, Isabel and I are heading out on the road together. So, Izzy, I'm going to give you a thank, thank you now and I'll thank you at the end. She's my team leader on the road. That means my best friend. So, again, if you would do us the honour of letting your friends in Sydney. most A lot of um, shows have sold out around Australia, but we're heading out there. So, if you've got friends in Sydney or Perth or Margaret River who want to come see us at Constance Hall or Yumi Steins or Miff Warhurst, you're all very welcome. Just help me spread the word. I would more, I would just really appreciate it. I thanks Christopher for the hair. And I thank Dr. Charlotte Keating for her contribution as well. I haven't yet thanked my writers group who sat with me as their weakest link for about two decades. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you for inviting me back every week. Um, and yeah, for everyone who really worked on this book. But the biggest thanks goes to the mother who pushed me out. <laughs> my inspiration, one of my heroes and was a profoundly useful um, co-editor really of parts of this book. You know, I gave her the book at a certain point, I thought it was finished and I said, mum, um, I have some post-it notes, just have a little peek, why don't you, and see if you have any comments or, you know, things, things I've got wrong. Well, holy jolly, came back <laughs> and it was there about 39 thousand post-it notes on the side. I was packing death. I thought, this book's over. Kelly, I'm sorry. Here's the advance back. Yeah, have your million dollars. <laughs> but but the, um, the truth is when, I, when it came to the nuts and the bolts, everything she said was useful and most of it were grammatical errors, you know. <laughs> She's a very keen line editor. There's got a future in that. But I really want to celebrate my beautiful mum, Mariana. She's the one who, in the audiobook, has given the language warning. She was a bit surprised by some of the swearing, she said. <laughs> it was good and fair enough too. Um, and also she's contributed her Dutch apple tart recipe to it. But more than anything, I've had a, you know, I've had a wonderful mother. And I just think that's a profound thing. So, mum, I'm going to give you some flowers. <laughs> sisters and brother and my cousins and my nieces and nephews. Up you get my family. Thank you, Mariana. What a legend. And also they think they got away with it. But my darling nieces, nephews, godchildren, who are all sitting here, my brothers-in-laws, can you just please have a stand? Because this has been a whole of family affair. To my children, just give a little stand up. I love you guys so, so much. Thank you. Jasmine reckons she got away with it. No, I saw you. All right, so this has been a marvellous experience and utterly surreal. Um, I just want to encourage all of you who have a book inside you, you really do have a book inside you. It might take you 20 years. Please keep telling your stories. It's been an absolute honour to share tonight with you and I want to end with one more thanks to Susan Carland. Hi. And maybe even a... Would you like a song? Yeah! <laughs> Again. So just mute me for one second. I mean, this is a technical talk over here. Don't mind me. <laughs> right. We're halfway there. This is, I'm just going to play out what goes in my head. You know, you see a performer on stage, they're like... <laughs> but in your head, you're like, right, okay, so I'll push that button and now I'm just going to go over here, I've got to pick that up and now I'm going <laughs> to... I bloody hope it works. I remember that time in Texas when it didn't work. <laughs> You've always got these stories going in your head. <laughs> but once you start playing, please. How many of you have sneakily read the intro to this book so far? <laughs> Greg and Leslie. Love you guys. Um, those of you who've read it will know that that's the kind of thing I do. I go to the toilet and just quickly read the intro. Those of you who've read it will know that this has been a challenging song for me to play over the years.
because it reminds me in that I speak about being more than this and always longing for that feeling. And that's the gift of my family and my audiences. Sometimes I get a little emo playing it, as was displayed in the Corner Hotel only months ago when Marty had to basically come and support me from behind. <laughs> Sounds wrong. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. Kemi, get that off Instagram now. Maybe there's a little bit of sex in the book. Okay, guys, just joking. Now, oh, what a shock. So I tried a different version of playing this song. I'm still laughing, babe, I'm sorry. On guitar rather than piano. And I dedicate it to all of you and the women that you love. unless you stop and mention it. Standing 
no regard for the pain they bring. Oh, my hope for you, my darling girls, be brave and build a dream in your own size. Cause otherwise, you're buying shit that you don't